0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is Jim Matheson, CEO of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the zero for zero bill at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with NRECA's Jim Matheson next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world, but billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies distort the global market and put U.S. producers at a disadvantage. Weakening America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would hurt family farms, jeopardize good-paying jobs, and weaken the supply chain that puts sugar on consumers' tables. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. After serving seven terms in the U.S. House of Representatives representing voters in Utah, Jim Matheson now leads 900 electric co-ops in 47 states, serving 42 million Americans. Reflecting on the status of the U.S. Congress today, Matheson says partisanship is getting in the way of good policy. We've seen this developing over, quite frankly, the last 20
1: to 30 years of increased polarization, increased partisanship, and that creates more gridlock. And when you have gridlock, that means it's all the more remarkable when you see a piece of legislation actually move through the process. And lo and behold, this infrastructure package that, that, that passed Congress uh was one that at least on the Senate side had bipartisanship associated with it. You had 69 of the 100 senators vote for the bill. And so I I take that as a, a an unfortunate exception to the norm. I wish there was more bipartisan legislation to move through Congress, but in this case we did have some consensus on the Senate side. It got a little more partisan on the House side for the final vote, but um, but I'm hopeful that uh, uh, there's a way out of this polarization because I think at the end of the day, most people in America, I know they're either an R or a D, most of them, but I do think they'd like to see our country constructive decisions made in Washington to help the country move forward. And I'd like to think that uh, uh, men and women of goodwill in either party can come together to try to pursue that type of agenda.
0: Some might suggest there's a difference between spending and investment. Do you see that this country is making the proper investments that it needs to to satisfy demands for the next generation?
1: well it's it's a great question because uh, there are a lot of ways you can categorize uh, spending but 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 I one way to do it that really addresses your question is is there spending to provide ongoing services in the moment versus spending that's really investing in something that creates value for the future, be it infrastructure where you're building a road or a bridge or be it investing in research to create new technologies that give us better economic opportunity in the future uh, uh those are kind of two as opposed to services which are we're trying to maintain something you've got right now be it uh, uh let's say healthcare or uh or, or other services like that i think that it's you're never going to have all of one and, and none of the other but i think that uh our spending in washington has been driven more by the uh services side and less by the investment side and i think if we really do want to take that longer view of what we're doing for our grandchildren um uh, those type of investment components uh within federal spending uh i think deserve more attention and i think there are a lot of different definitions of investment you could but i think infrastructure is sort of your classic place to land on that and it's not just roads and bridges it could be investment in broadband for america it could be investment in uh, the electric grid to make it more reliable and resilient, uh, so it, it performs during weather events. It could be, uh, something as basic as electric vehicle infrastructure. If all the automakers are gonna move ahead with these electric vehicles, how are we gonna go about making sure you can get your vehicle powered up in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in an easy way for a consumer? So I, I think that investment term that you used in your question, it's one that sure rings true to me. Uh, of course, I work for the electric cooperatives, and all of our decisions are based on that longer-term view when we make investments. So it's kind of in our culture already. So that may be another reason it rings true as well.
0: You served your time on the Energy and Transportation Committee. So with that, let me ask... Are we at a threshold in the nation, whether it's electricity or whether it's liquid fuels or it's next-generation fuels? Are we coming on a point where leadership needs to make some commitments for what tomorrow's going to look like?
1: Well, I think it's it's a question of do we have the capacity to meet wherever markets and technology take us, because as much as we can sit – there's a group of people who can sit in Washington and say what they like things to be. Markets and technology are going to drive what we do in terms of energy use and in terms of transportation. And uh, policy is not irrelevant, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying there are big forces out there beyond the policy world that policymakers need to understand and accommodate. So how do we make sure we have a system that can operate under wherever markets or technology take us? Well, number one, um, you know, we got to have in the transportation sector, we've got to have roads that actually uh, can handle the traffic. And, and, and we funded it historically over the years with, with a gasoline tax that's for X cents per gallon, right? Well, if we have vehicles switching to other fuels, that, that calls into question how you fund building those roads and maintaining them over time. So that's how I would describe where policy needs to go. It needs to recognize that market and technology is changing the field and does policy fit that new field? As opposed to the way things used to be now easy for me to say that i acknowledge it's not always easy to predict the future but i do think a forward-looking approach to the way policymakers look at all these issues has got to take place it's got to be part of how they do their job
0: how stable is the base load of the power grid in the nation are we at a surplus
1: well it's a great question uh when you talk about base load, uh, without getting into the weeds too much, I divide power into two categories. Is there the power that is always available, uh, that you can turn it on and off when you want it to meet your needs, versus the intermittent resources, which are are often in the renewable side. If the sun is shining, you've got power. If it's dark at night, you don't have solar power. If the wind's blowing, the windmills make power. When it's not blowing, you don't have power. So that's the Not always available power. And I think that in general, while this country has experienced remarkable gains in efficiency in terms of how our equipment and and motors and and, and appliances use electricity, we still see increasing demand for electricity in this country. And, uh, and and we're not building a lot of new generation. Do we have adequate supply today? The answer is yes, of course we do. But as we go forward and we're looking at electrifying more and more of our economy, and it's more and more difficult to locate new generation, more and more difficult to locate new transmission lines to deliver that electricity to where it's needed, that's the key question this country faces on terms of reliability of electric supply. I can tell you for the electric cooperatives, we've got a very stable uh, base of generation that's base load generation that's always available. Uh, we work to protect that every way we can because um, you'll hear a lot of people in the energy sector say it's all about reliability and affordability. They say it so much, I wonder how much they really mean it, but we really mean it. It really matters that when our consumer way out of the end of the line, flips on that switch, that the light always goes on, and at the end of the month, when they get the bill, they can afford the bill. And that's how we view how we approach the policy environment on behalf of electric cooperatives. And I think we do have, at least for our members, a pretty strong source of supply.
0: So how much of today's electric power is generated by fossil fuels, either coal or natural gas?
1: Fossil fuels, between uh, coal and natural gas, Still are going to reflect, uh, you know, roughly 60%. And I'm just, I'm giving a very rough number, at least 60% of the power in this country. Some years you'll have better hydro production. Some years you'll have better solar production than other years. But, uh, fossil fuels are still the majority of electricity produced in this country.
0: Is it concerning to you to see the war on coal continue and perhaps now being doubled down under the climate debate?
1: Uh, Our concern is uh, that uh, we want to make sure that you can keep the lights on. This economy is based on having electricity always available, and uh, we want to make sure that if you're going to take away a resource that is always available, which would be, in your question, a coal-based plant, how are you going to replace that with something that's also always available? Now, what's been happening over the last few years, just really based on market forces, is a lot of coal plants have shut down and natural gas plants have replaced them because they're less, ex- they've been less expensive to run because natural gas prices have been so low. So you're replacing one fossil fuel with another. But, uh, in the longer run, if you're gonna see a movement to try to address and pursue a lower carbon future, the open question that I think we all ought to want to answer, wherever you are on the debate, is how do we make sure that we have reliable power? That's, that, that's really a basic question. Sounds so basic, it sounds crazy I'm even asking it, right? But, but that's the question we continue to raise is we gotta make sure we focus on reliability supply and those always available plants that, quite frankly, particularly in extreme weather events, have kept the grid going. We better make sure we understand that if you take those away, uh, how you're going to replace that level of reliability.
0: So can you sustainably use coal to generate power, natural gas to generate power? And what's your sustainability story over a period of time?
1: I will say that there has been a lot of progress in and in, in when you say sustainability I assume you're you're raising the question of if we're gonna look at opportunities to continue to use those fuels and not have a significant of a carbon footprint. And that's where uh the technology that a lot of people talked about over the years is one of capturing the carbon and sequestering it in the ground. I can tell you that we've got one of our uh members uh Minkota Power uh in North Dakota that is as we speak, constructing a carbon capture and sequestration set of equipment at an existing coal fired plant, it's going to capture the carbon, put it underground. That's the type of technology that allows coal production to happen without a significant carbon footprint, uh, it's not cheap. I, I'm, I don't want to oversell you on this. It, it costs money to do, but, but electric co-ops are trying to have a leadership role in demonstrating that we can make investments that allow those very reliable resources to continue.
0: So of concern are stories of the drought in California, and we're not generating as much electricity with hydroelectric power. And then last year's weather event in Texas Uh, that had an effect on electric generation, and a number of individuals did without power for a period of time. Uh, uh, When I ask about the reliability of the grid, are these stories an exception, or are they more of a rule?
1: I think they're raising the issue and raising consciousness about as we enter a period where we're seeing these extreme weather events, it, it places pressure on the grid. And the question is, how can we make investments in the grid, be it through either the generation side or the transmission side as well, to make sure we have the resilience to perform under those extreme events? A lot of people try to point to just one variable that makes the difference on, let's say, why the lights went out in Texas with that weather event. There was actually a lot of factors that went into, into that uh, situation, which was really tragic because there was loss of life because of the the power being out with that extreme cold. But at the end of the day, there are investments that can be made to make a more resilient grid that would allow us to be able to withstand those type of extreme cold events in Texas. Again, not going to come for free. I don't want to oversell you, but I do think that there are investments we can make to create a more resilient grid, and that's the type of thing that we ought to be talking about in the policy arena.
0: So there are new forms of electric generation, and one is solar And a story across the country are solar farms that are being built that are, in essence, competing for land. Also, the wind power that is available with the turbines. Are you able to make investments in these particular areas?
1: What a great question. First of all, uh, you mentioned the the concern about land use. And that is a big concern in a lot of agricultural areas. These these solar farms take up a lot of space. Uh, Wind turbines aren't quite as disruptive. You can still... Uh, farm around them, if you will, and uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of folks in in rural America have benefited from having wind farms located on their property. They get to charge a lease for it. But the challenge for electric cooperatives in making those investments directly is Congress has offered a subsidy for years and years for either solar or wind that's in the form of a tax credit. Well, that doesn't help us. Uh, we're non for profit. We we don't pay taxes, so we can't get that tax credit. So that incentive to invest in in wind or solar really hasn't been uh, the same incentive for us as it is for the big for-profit utilities. Uh, If we want to have a solar, instead of us building it, what happens is some other third-party group builds the solar farm or the wind farm, they take the tax credits, they make a profit, they then sell the electricity to us, and then we sell it to our consumers at cost. So that value of the tax credit, that value that Congress has set up to help encourage those technologies, it doesn't come to our consumers. It, it goes off to that third party. So we've been talking to Congress a lot about saying, hey, why, don't you, why if, you, if you want to incentivize investment in this type of uh, technology, why don't you want to incentivize that for us as well? Why don't we set up something that would do that for us as well? And i got to tell you, we've got a lot of agreement in Washington that, uh, that, that it's a good idea, but unless Congress passes legislation, we're still going to be on the outside looking in. Uh,
0: I know the World Series is over, but i got a fastball for you right down the middle. <laughs> the, this administration and a number of environmentalists have an opinion that electric cars and electric vehicles are the answer. It takes power to charge those vehicles, especially in a timely manner. Is the electric grid, is the, the the grid that's inside subdivisions and across the poles of the country and the transformers on the poles, are we ready for a half million plus electric vehicles in the country?
1: Uh, I think that the uh, grid is, uh, if you want to particularly, there's two ways to charge a vehicle. One is the low, slower charge where you do it overnight, but the rapid charge is when you do it in 5, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, if everyone wants to plug in their cars overnight in their garage, I think the electric grid can handle that. But if you want to have a rapid charging, which I don't know about you, but I think most people in America are used to going and filling their tank with gasoline in a few minutes, I think they're going to want to do the same when it comes to charging with electricity. Uh, it's going to require a real investment in the grid. It really creates operational challenges to have those those surges of. A lot of power sold for a few minutes going into each individual vehicle. And so the technology, technologically it's possible, but we're going to have to make some significant investments in the grid to make it practically possible to accommodate huge distribution of electric vehicles in this country. It, 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 it's not going to come easy, and it is going to require a lot of investment to get there. Now, look, I'm, I represent 900 electric co-ops that make money by for their consumers uh, if they're selling electricity, and so it sounds like, oh, gee, you're selling more electricity. That'll make your your cooperative stronger. Well, maybe <laughs> it, it could, but if you, the investments it takes to help to deliver that electricity in the right way to serve those cars, that's not going to come without a significant expense.
0: Well, if I'm and a so, farmer, if I'm a farmer and I've got a grain handling system at the last mile, or if I've got confined livestock operations that are counting on ventilation and electricity to to yep. take care of those animals, and everybody between the 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 generation plant. Uh, and me is now going to get an electric vehicle with that souped-up charger? I'm kind of wondering if there's enough left for me.
1: Well, you, look, you're you're raising, again, the right issue. Uh, both, both amount of power and availability in the moment based on what the load is on the system. And these are questions that uh, are complicated, and you don't hear them talked about and discussed in the conversation about, a uh, movement over to electric vehicles. Look, I I think at the end of the day, um elect- you, you hear what all the automakers are saying. There's going to be a lot of ec- electric vehicles being manufactured if you, if if you just see, see what the automakers are saying they're going to do over the next few years. I think I think they're going to start out more in the urban areas, quite frankly, and I think that when it comes to re- the range of these vehicles and the ability uh to uh to go over long distances, and oh, by the way, the battery also is also what heats your car in the winter because you're not getting any heat off a combustion engine. I'm here to tell you that I think that there may be, it may be slower, uh, for all those reasons in coming to rural America as much. That may be helpful for rural America. It gives us a chance to see how the first run of this goes in these urban areas and learn from their experience, both what worked and, and the mistakes that happened too. So I, again, I'm not trying to be Mr. Futurist here when I try to predict all this, but I just think that I have a sense that that's where the electric vehicles are going to go first is in those other more urban areas.
0: Well, Jim, I'm full of easy questions here for you. But if uh, coal is bad and natural gas is expensive and wind and solar aren't as reliable as we would like to be, then where do we need to be investing in order to shore up our supply of electricity for what's to come?
1: Well, first of all, I think that uh, uh, we have experienced this remarkable run. Although, while natural gas may look it's, it's crept up in price in the last year, or some, you know, the fracking uh, technology really opened up gas markets in a significant way back in 2007, 8, 9, and we've got a lot of relatively well-priced gas at a stable supply for for a good chunk of time in the future as well. I, like I said, I know it's gone up some this year. But I think it's still going to be a reliable source. and and and, and coal continues in, in the co-op world to be a source of reliable uh, affordable energy. And, uh, and and I think that's still going to be an important part of the portfolio for for, for uh, uh, electric generation in the co-op world. That being said, if you want to look way down the road and look at where you're going to have to go with this, you're going to have to look at a, a couple of technologies. One is if you want to be carbon-free and you want to have it always available, you're going to have to put nuclear power back in the mix more than it has been. Now, we all know that we haven't had many new nuclear power plants built in this country over the last few years. It's expensive. Um, they're hard to cite, but they are a reliable source of power that runs 24-7, and uh, and I think that that's going to be an important part of our future. And anything we can do to fund research to find ways to be more efficient in how we build those plants to make them more cost-effective. I think that's in the public interest to take a look at that as well. Finally, the other issue on, uh, that, that, that is worth mentioning is if we ever get to the point where technologically we can develop more large-scale battery storage capacity for the electric grid, that's going to be a significant game-changer on how we create greater reliability. Um uh, Technologically, it exists, but doing it in a commercially viable way at scale doesn't exist today. But uh, that could be another area where, uh, in the future, it could create some more reliability if you have the ability to store uh, significant amounts of power.
0: Well, I'm telling my age here, uh, but if I look back to the day when I had a 56K modem, I thought I was flying. (laughs) But if I could have gone to a 25.3 Internet, that would have been light years. But after you've been on 25.3 for a while and you have a chance to sample a faster rate, Uh, you want the faster rate. If you've never had broadband, you want broadband. So funds are available through the FCC, and funds are available from the USDA. Do they work with you? Are those programs functional for rural co-ops to help you take advantage of those and serve more people, or are there protectionist matters in place that have your hands tied?
1: Well, I will say historically there have been protectionist matters in place by certain entities that already are providing lower-end service, but I think we're making a lot of progress in breaking down those barriers. I think USDA in particular just announced their next round of funding for broadband, and by the way, they've said they want speeds 100 up, 100 down, so we're past your 25-3, and I think that's really good news. And they want to show preference to non-profit co-ops in terms of where that money goes, so I think we want to get... Funding to go to those rural areas, those sparsely populated, expensive places to get broadband. I think USDA gets it, but they also get it that it should be real broadband. The thing that I can't stand is when someone says, oh, we can offer lower, slower service there. That's quote, good enough for rural. I, 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 I push back on that. Anytime that's said, I think rural America should have the same quality of broadband as any place else in this country. And I'm pleased that the USDA has adopted for this latest round of funding, and, and Secretary Vilsack just announced it in the last month, uh, that they're going to have real speeds and preference for non-profit co-ops. I think it's a good step. Now, there's a lot more money at the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, than there is at USDA. Same thing there, though. They're moving in a much better direction. We're not perfect yet. we still got our issues we'd like to have them addressed. But we're opening up areas for competition where co-ops can also bid on those areas to provide broadband. Um, we got a long way to go. Uh, but I do think it's at least trending in a better direction in terms of how that federal funding has been structured and the rules and the way it's implemented.
0: Jim Matheson, we want to thank you very much for taking time to talk to us about this such an important issue. Uh, this is Open Mic, and today, Jim, you've got the last word.
1: Well, i got to say that uh, America's electric cooperatives, uh, which uh, serve 42 million people, that's about one in eight Americans, we're passionate about our mission. And I hope people could hear some of that in the way I responded to the questions today. We represent we're we're owned by the consumers we serve and that consumer focus drives everything we do. And when it comes to advocating in Washington on behalf of our membership, it's all about that consumer at the end of the line. And uh, whether it's power, reliable, affordable power, whether it's access to broadband, that's our bread and butter. And I gotta say I'm real proud to run this organization. I, I, I'm proud to represent the people where I represent. And uh, if anybody ever has any suggestions for what we can do better to serve our communities, I can tell you co-ops always have an open ear and want to hear from everybody. We like that feedback because we value the people we represent. Really appreciate the chance to have this conversation with you today because these are important issues of the day, and it's an exciting time for rural America to address these issues.
0: Our thanks to Jim Matheson, CEO of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Foreign subsidies are a threat to the U.S. sugar industry. Learn more about the zero for zero bill at SugarAlliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.